we're thankful that you are with us, especially if you're a visitor. We're very glad that you're here. And uh, it's just a blessing to be able to gather in this way and to lift up uh, our Father in heaven and to praise His Son, Jesus Christ, and to reflect on all the blessings that we enjoy. Now, if you've been doing your Bible reading, you, all of us, are almost finished with Genesis. And if you're like me, you have been asking a lot of questions as you've read. You've been confronted with some confusing stuff along the way. And so tonight, I intend to address some of what I think are the most difficult questions of Genesis. So if you, as you've gone along, have been saying, what in the world is that about? What does that mean? Why did this person do that? Why are they involved in this? And so on and so forth. If you've been filled with questions like me, then why don't you come back at 6 tonight and we're going to tackle some of those. Now, I'm not going to cover every question that you've had. And we won't cover every question thoroughly and completely. And you may still leave with some, some questions in your mind. But hopefully, we will begin to tackle and, and uh, try, to, try to grasp some of the mysteries that we have seen in the book of Genesis. So I invite you back at 6 o'clock. Now, if you've been reading, you have encountered Jacob. And Jacob is the man that I want us to talk about today. And the point at his story where where I want us to to begin is a very, maybe his his lowest point, his, his most difficult, challenging moment in life. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, is at the end of his rope. He's desperate. His estranged brother Esau, and if you were here uh, uh, Sunday night or two ago, you heard uh, Alex talk about this strained relationship between these twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, at this point in the story, at Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is heading back into the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers, but he's gotten word that Esau is heading north towards him with 400 men that Jacob assumes is an army. And Esau, the last time these two were together, it was evident that Esau hated Jacob. And Scripture tells us that Esau was out to kill Jacob. And so Jacob is shaking in his boots. He's afraid. He's distressed. He thinks that Esau and his army is coming to take him down, to take his wives and his children, his family, and the whole entourage to kill them all. And he has nowhere to look but up. He's about to pray to God. And his prayer, it makes me think of that scene in It's a Wonderful Life. And I know I've shared a lot of illustrations from this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorite movies. And it is ripe for using in sermons, I think. But I don't think I've ever talked about George Bailey's prayer. If you've seen the movie you know that there is a scene in which George prays to God and he's desperate because his uncle Billy has lost $8,000, which in 1947 was a lot of money. It would be like over 100000 today. And he knows that when the bank examiner finds out that there's an $8,000 shortfall, that 
Well, scandal is going to follow, maybe criminal charges. And he's gone, they've searched for the money, they can't find it. He's gone home, he's taken out his frustration on his family. He's gone out into this cold winter's night into the snow and he finds himself belly up to the bar at this local establishment and he begins to pray. And there's sweat, it's the middle of winter, but there's sweat on his brow and his face is distorted and twisted in anguish and distress. And he says, God... Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but I need your help. If you're up there and you can hear me, I need you to show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope and I need you to show me the way. Oh, Father in heaven. The prayer that Jacob prays is very much like that prayer. Let's read it together in Genesis chapter 32, verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I can hear the quavering in Jacob's voice. I can hear the distress as he bears his heart before God. As he's in a a very difficult moment. In his life. And in this prayer, Jacob reminds us of all the ways that God has blessed him. God has been good to Jacob, going all the way back to, well, before he even came into the world. God told his mother as she carried within her womb twins, Jacob and Esau, he said to her, The older shall serve the younger. And who is the older of the two brothers? Who is the one? Uh, to come into the world first, it was Esau. And God had said, before they were even born, Esau is going to serve Jacob. The older is going to serve the younger. I'm going to use Jacob as part of my extraordinary lineage, which has passed from Abraham down to Isaac, now through Jacob, which will eventually arrive at Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so, Jacob was favored by God from before he was even born, blessed by God. He was going to be part of this royal lineage that would eventually arrive at Jesus. And if you look at Genesis chapter 28, you find the famous story, what we call Jacob's ladder, where Jacob sleeps and he has this dream and there's a ladder stretching up into the heavens and the angels are ascending and descending on it and God appears to Jacob and he renews his covenant with Jacob. The covenant that he had made with his granddaddy Abraham. The covenant that he had renewed with his daddy Isaac. He now says, I am renewing my covenant with you. My covenant to bless all of the nations through you and through your family. To bring redemption to all humanity. I'm going to use you and your descendants to do that. This is God's covenant. We talked about this uh, on the first Sunday of the year. God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. 
And it was God who told Jacob to leave the land of his father-in-law. He'd gone up there to find a wife. And God says, go back to the land of your fathers. Go back to the land of Canaan. And so Jacob goes. And we find in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1, that angels accompanied him on the journey. And so God had been good to Jacob. God had favored Jacob. God had blessed Jacob. He'd been with Jacob. And yet, when you look at Jacob's life, and you've seen it if you've been reading, you've seen how Jacob has never quite lived up to his God-given potential. Has he? He's a bit of a rascal. He's kind of a scoundrel. You see, let's go all the way back to the beginning again. Before he was born, we find that the Scriptures tell us that he and his brother Esau struggled together in their mother's womb, in Rebekah's womb. They were already fighting, fussing. Now, I'm sure we've got some siblings in here who fuss and fight a lot, but this really takes the cake. These two started fighting before they even came into the world, these twins. And we find that Esau emerges first. He's the firstborn. And when Jacob comes out, He's got Esau by the heel. And so they name him Jacob because that name means heel grabber. That's what his name means. Heel grabber or it also may have the meaning he deceives. He cheats. And we found that Jacob has done a fine job of living up to that name. In Genesis chapter 25, he convinces his brother Esau to sell him his birthright. You remember this story. Esau comes in from the field. He's been hunting. He's famished. Jacob is cooking this stew that smells delicious. And Esau says, give me some of that. And Jacob says, I'll give you some of it if you sell me your birthright. And the birthright was sought after from the father. And it would would have been given to the elder son. So it belonged to Esau. And Esau in in this moment gets caught up in, in... what he wants at the moment rather than this wonderful gift that he's been given by his father. And he says, okay, you can have it. Just give me some of the stew. And so Jacob sort of weasels his way in to grabbing the birthright from his brother Esau, the birthright that belonged to him. And then a little bit later on, we find that Jacob deceives his father Isaac into giving him the blessing. The blessing sought after from the father, which belonged by right to the elder son. He knew that Isaac, who was very old and very blind, was getting ready to bless Esau. He said, Esau, make me a big meal so I can bless you. Jacob gets word of it from his mother who favored him. But that's another story. And Jacob gets the hide of an animal and puts it on the back of his neck and on his arms because Esau was a hairy man and and he knew that he could, he could trick his dad. And so he and his mom make up a big spread and he goes into the presence of his dad. And Isaac knows that something's up because Jacob's voice doesn't sound quite right. I mean, it's supposed to be Esau here, but it sounds like Jacob. But Jacob just straight up lies to his dad and says, no, it's me, dad. It's Esau. Please bless me. And Isaac blesses the wrong boy. Jacob cheats, has already cheated his brother Esau out of the birthright. Now he cheats him out of the blessing. And this is what makes Esau 
fuming mad at Jacob. This is what causes Esau to pledge, I will kill my brother. That's what causes Jacob to get out of town. And he goes up and he finds a a wife, two wives in fact, and his father-in-law Laban is kind of a tricky guy too, but Jacob tricks him and leaves many years later with his whole family, leaves unannounced. I go through these stories quickly to illustrate Jacob, Jacob has developed a reputation as a cheat, as a deceiver. Cheated his brother, cheated his dad, cheated his father-in-law. All along, Jacob has gotten by on shrewdness, on self-sufficiency, and he seems to have kept God at arm's length. Did you notice the beginning of this prayer in this desperate situation that Jacob finds himself in Genesis chapter 32? Jacob addresses God as God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Oh God, not of me, not my God, but God of my dad. God of my granddad. We sense that there's some distance here. There's some detachment. This is how Jacob has operated throughout his life, but now Jacob's past has caught up with him. And the chickens have, have come home to roost. And Esau is on his way, Jacob believes, to slaughter him, to kill him out of anger. And so he prays, Jacob prays as we've just read. He sends a gift, a giant gift of um, livestock ahead to Esau to try to placate his anger. And he sends his wives and his children across the stream to sort of protect him. And at chapter 32, verse 24, he finds himself alone. We see that in verse 24. Jacob was left alone. And that's when things get pretty strange, pretty weird. If you've read the story, you know what I'm talking about. What we find in verse 24 is that Jacob gets in a wrestling match with a man who is later identified as God, God in human form. This man comes seemingly out of nowhere in verse 24, and the text tells us that he wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. They wrestle all night. Now let's keep reading in verses 25 and 26. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So wait a second. Not only is Jacob wrestling God in human form, Jacob is winning. Now, God must be allowing Jacob to keep scrapping around because, I mean, God could have crushed his opponent in one moment, right? We know what God is capable of, but these two spar all night long, and the man who is God in human form sees that he is not prevailing against Jacob. So what does he do? He touches his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So we know that this is more than just a man. Because you don't just touch the hip socket and it falls out of joint. This is somebody with supernatural power. This is God in human form. But not even that stops Jacob. I mean, he is a scrappy guy. He's a stubborn guy. He's going to hang in here till the bitter end. Verse 26, he said, let me go. The man says this, let me go for the day has broken. The fight is over. Let's stop this thing. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
I'm trying to do a voice like I'm in a fight. You, you'll find this hard to believe. I haven't been in many fights in my life. But that's what I would imagine that it would sound like if I was in a fight. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. What is going on here? This is an incredible story. What are we to make of this? What I see here, among other things, is a God who is bent on breaking Jacob of his deceptive ways, of his self-sufficiency, of his selfishness that has plagued him throughout his life and prevented him from living the life that God intended him to live, to living up to his full God-given potential. God is going to, God's going to wrestle that out of him, even if it takes all night, even if it takes putting his hip out of socket. God is going to have his way with Jacob. God has already said in Genesis chapter 28, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. I'm going to stick with you. And by golly, I'm going to get through to you. I'm going to change you if it's the last thing I do, even if it means sparring with you all night long. And what is the lesson in there for, for us? I believe that God is going to be relentless with us, even ruthless with us. He's going to do whatever it takes to rid our hearts of self-reliance so that we can learn to trust Him more, to appreciate His grace in greater ways. He is going to see Christ formed in us. He is going to finish the work that He started through His Son on the day that we were baptized. He's going to get through to us one way or another, even if it means he's got to wrestle us to the ground to make it happen. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the thorn in the flesh that he had. And we don't know what that is. Some sort of a physical ailment that he was inflicted with. He said it was a messenger of Satan. But he also says God used it for his good. He asked God to move it, no, remove it no fewer than three times. He said, God... Please get rid of this, whatever it was. Maybe it was a problem with his speech or some sort of physical ailment that made him seem weak in front of the Christians that he was ministering to. And he thought that his ministry could be much more effective without it. And he said, God, please rid this from my body. And God said, no. He said, no. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, I am going to do my work through you. I'm going to make sure that you reach your God-given potential. I'm going to ensure that Christ is formed in you, even if it means leaving an ailment, a thorn in the flesh, a problem around to teach you to trust in me and not in yourself to teach you to become more reliant in my ways and not self-sufficient. Carry on in your selfish ways. God is going to do the same for us. That's what He does to Jacob here. He wrestles him all night long to try to get through to him and remind him that he needed to place his trust in him and stop relying on himself. Now, in the throes of the wrestling match, in verse 27, he said to him, the man... God in human form said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men 
and have prevailed. Now, why does he have to ask him his name? He knows his name, right? The man who is God in human form, God who has appeared on the scene in this mysterious way, he knows Jacob's name. So why does he ask him his name? He asks him his name because he wants Jacob to admit who he is. Not just tell him his name, but share with him his identity. What he's been about for all his life. Because you know in this day and age, your name wasn't just a name. It revealed something about who you were. And God in this moment wants Jacob to fess up, to admit who he is. And the kind of life that he's lived thus far. What is your name? My name is heel grabber. It's deceiver. It's cheater. And that's exactly what I've been doing all through my life. God wants Jacob to admit who he is so that he can tell Jacob, no, that is not your name anymore. Your name is no longer Jacob. It is now Israel, which means he strives with God. God wants us to admit who we are to him as well. God wants us to tell him our name. My name is selfishness. My name is pride. My name is lust. My name is anger. My name is materialism. And when we can admit that to God, then God can in turn say to us, no, that may have been your name, but if you follow me, that is no longer your name. You shall no longer be called that. Your new name is forgiveness. It's righteousness. It's holy, it's saint. That's your new name. But you don't get your new name until you can admit to your old name. And when you're a baptized believer, let me say this. I want everybody to pay attention. When you're a baptized believer, when God looks at you, He no longer sees your sin. He sees His Son. You've got a new name. And God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we could become the righteousness of God. God doesn't see you by your old name anymore. If you've confessed faith in Him, if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, you've got a new name. You wear the name of His Son. I had the privilege of baptizing my oldest daughter, into Christ just yesterday afternoon. What a glorious day. What a wonderful moment. And Lauren's dad was here, and anytime Lauren's dad is around, you got to let him get a word in. And even if you don't let him, he's going to get a word in, all right? He's not even here to defend himself. But he had some good words to say yesterday. As we gathered around after the baptism, and we prayed around Elise, He said, there's three things I always like to say in moments like these when somebody has confessed faith and been baptized. 
I like to say that your sins have been washed away. I like to say that you've been brought into a new family. And the third thing is, the third thing that is important to say is that you've been given a new name. You now wear the name of Christ. You have the name Christian. That's your new name. And that's how God knows you. No, Jacob. Jacob is not your name anymore. Your name is now Israel. Now, not surprisingly, Jacob's request for the name of this mysterious man goes unanswered. Jacob in chapter 32, verse 29 says, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And I love this, verse 31. The man rose, I mean, excuse me, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. He limps away from this experience, leaves with a permanent limp, a constant physical reminder of his insufficiency and God's power. Every step as Jacob, excuse me, Israel, went throughout his life, every single step would remind him that it wasn't him controlling his life's story. It was the great author above, God in heaven. He's the one in charge and in control. Now, to his surprise, remember Esau's on the way. Don't forget about that. That's where we began. That's why Jacob was praying. Esau's on the way. Wouldn't you know it that he and Esau have a warm, tender reunion? Esau has forgiven and forgotten their past. The two embrace and they kiss and they weep. And Jacob arrives safely at the land of his fathers where God had sent him to go. And I want you to look at this. Check this out, verse 20. I love this detail. Don't gloss over it. At chapter 33, the very next chapter at verse 20, when Jacob gets there, when he reaches his final destination, the Scriptures say he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And that is Hebrew, which means God, the God of Israel. God, the God of me. My God. Not just my granddaddy's God. Not just my daddy's God. He's my God now. He has proven Himself to me, and I want to give my life as an offering to Him. Yes, there are challenges and trials ahead for Jacob, but this marks a huge turning point. God has proven Himself to Jacob, and Jacob's stubborn will at last hath yielded to God. And you know what? Today can be a turning point for you. God has proven Himself to you. God has proven His love and His mercy to you by sending His one and only Son to the earth to die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And today I challenge you, if you have not yet done this, make Him your God. Not just the God of my ancestors. Not just the God of my family. The God of my mom and dad or my grandparents. Today you have the opportunity to say, no, I want that God to be my God. And this morning, you can allow that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can allow that God to give you a new name. The name of Christian. Or if you're struggling in any way and you need to come and ask for prayers, you can do that too right now as we stand and sing.